Good morning in Boca Tov from Boca Raton, Florida, where it is frigid cold. You should all have tremendous sympathy for us, for this uh, terrible cold front coming through. It's about 50 degrees and a biting wind outside. Uh, in all seriousness, we're thinking about those who are buried under snow and uh, wishing you safety and health and warmth and only good, good things. I want to thank our sponsors. First of all, uh, for the day of learning, Ronan and Dr. Sid Cohen in honor of the birth of their granddaughter, Zahava Kaplan, daughter to Alyssa and Nachum Kaplan, big mazel tov on her birth. You should have a lot of nachas from her. And thank you for sponsoring the learning for the entire day. I also want to thank our Parsha sponsor for the year, our dear friends, Becky and Avi Katz, and family in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, David ben Menachem Manesh. The learning should be Le'iloi Nishma So. And this morning's Parsha class finally is also sponsored by Judith Rosen in memory of her beloved husband, Rabbi Marvin Rosen, whom I remember very well from my childhood growing up in Tinek, Harav Elimelech Barach Menzion, on his yurt site, and sponsored by Harry Goldman in memory of her beloved husband, Hilton Goldman, Hillel Ben Gershon, on his yurt site, and her Fuhr Shlema for herself, Hindi Bas Pesi, Shabila Ili Nishmas, those for whom it's dedicated, or Fuhr Shlema for those for whom it's dedicated. And if you'd like to sponsor a class going forward, please email Lee, L E E, at brsonline.org. L-E-E at brsonline.org. Okay, we've got an action-packed Parsha class for you this morning. I'm really excited for the Divrei Torah that we have. So I'm really excited and very beautiful insights. As always, we glean Parsha perspectives for today. Our goal is not just to analyze the Parsha theoretically or in the abstract, but to rather extract from it lessons that inform and inspire our living today. Parsha Yisro can be found in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash on page 394. Yisro heard, Yisro, the Kohen, Yisro, the priest, who happens to be the Shver, the father-in-law of Moshe, heard all that God had done for Moshe and for the Jewish people. And what is it referring to? What is all that he had done? What is that a reference to? All that he had done, meaning that he took Moshe and the Jewish people out of Egypt. Rashi nevertheless asks, Mashmo Shama Uba, what is it that Yisro heard that made him come? Which is a peculiar question. We're not going to get into this. We've discussed this many times in the past. It's among my favorite Divrei Torah because the Pasuk itself tells us what he heard. So what do I need? What do I need Rashi to ask? What did he hear? And then give us three answers. Now Rashi, don't blame Rashi. Rashi is simply quoting the Gemara and Zochem. And the Gemara and Zochem quotes these three opinions, the three possibilities of what he heard. Did he hear about the splitting of the sea? Did he hear about the battle with Amalek? Did he hear about the giving of the Torah? But why is the Gemara Zavachim even debating what he heard about? Why does Rashi even have to raise that question? After all, the Torah itself testifies. The Torah itself tells us. What did he hear? He heard that God liberated, emancipated, took the people out of Egypt. So what's the guesswork? Why the debate? Number one. Number two, what do you mean he heard about Melchemes Amalek? Shouldn't it say he heard about the victory with Amalek? Why the war with Amalek? And the answer to that is very simple. If you look back at the end of last week's parasha, the end of Bishalach, you will see that in fact the Jewish people were not victorious. Nowhere does it say in last week's parasha that the Jewish people defeated Amalek. It simply says we battled them. Well, if we didn't beat them, we didn't defeat them, then what was impressive about it? What did Yisro hear that excited him? What did Yisro hear that drew him? 
Why did Yisro come simply because of it? So the famous answer that's given, Rav Druk has the opening essay on this week's Pasha. We're not going to look at it inside because we have so many other insights from Rav Druk and others to share. But Rav Druk quotes what many others do, which is that Rashi was not asking, what did he hear? Yisro heard the same thing as the whole world. Anyone with an internet connection, anyone who got the newspaper delivered, anyone who turned on the radio, they all heard the same thing. The miracles of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim of the Exodus. Rashi's question was more specific, which is, Mashmoshama Uba. What did Yisro hear that made him come? What did Yisro hear that made him leave where he was, Midian? He was a high priest. Yisro and Midian was a dignitary, an aristocrat. Yisro had prominence and honor, and he leaves that all to go back to the beginning, to start in kindergarten. He's got a PhD, and he goes all the way back to first grade when he joins the Jewish people. And that's what Rashi wants to know. What did he hear? Uba that moved him to get up and change his life. Everyone else took another sip of coffee and turned the page of the newspaper. Huh, interesting. Wow, 10 plagues. Wow, splitting of the sea. Isn't that fascinating? Anyway, could you pass me the sports section? Yisro didn't keep reading, didn't keep sipping his coffee. He got up and he left. He moved. He transformed his life radically. That's the kind of listener he was. Vayishma. We've discussed this many times in the past and we won't get into it again now, but I believe this entire parsha is all about the power of listening, the importance of listening. That's why there's a debate. Did Yisro come before or after the Torah was given? And one of the things we're going to look at momentarily is, if you assume that Yisro really came after the Torah was given, then why does the Torah present it as if he came before? Why does the Torah put it out of order? And there's a famous debate among the commentaries. Is Muktam Uchar Batorah? Yesh Muktam or Ein Muktam Uchar Batorah? Is the Torah written chronologically? Is it a history book recording accurately in the timeline it happened? Or is the Torah written thematically? Is it telling us themes and lessons and morals, and therefore the order is less important than the juxtaposition and the transitions, which are meant to communicate and articulate messages to us? And that's a famous question, but if you believe the Torah has to be written, or is generally written in an order, and this is moved out of order in order to communicate a theme, what theme is it communicating? Why leave the chronology? Why leave the order? What theme is it communicating? And I think part of the answer, at least, is it's communicating the power of listening. I think those are the opening words of the parsha. Vayishma Yisro. Yisro listened. And when he joins the Jewish people, by the way, what's his first observation? He says, hey, Moshe, there's no way you could be a good listener. There are two to three million people lining up in order to talk to you. And with that kind of pressure and that kind of responsibility, you simply cannot be a good listener without delegating. So therefore, we need to know that before we receive the Torah, we have to learn to be good listeners. In the words of Stephen Covey, first seek to understand before being understood. Covey writes that most people listen. Listening is just when they're taking a break in between their turn to talk. Listening is when they're formulating what they're going to say next, but that's not really listening. That's not active listening. There's a reason that one of the 48 ways the Torah is acquired, the Mishnah Perkei tells us, is Shmiya Sa'uzin, is listening. So Yisro is introducing us. We haven't yet learned the lesson. If you've been around Jewish people, we're still trying to learn how to be decent listeners and let other people speak. But Yisro is teaching us that if you want to be able to absorb, if you want to take in, if you want to take the lessons of Torah, you have to first learn to be a good listener. So even though, even if it's out of order, it's nevertheless such an important lesson to teach us, Vayishma Yisro, Shmiya the power of listening, even before we receive the Torah. The Divrei Yecheskel, the great uh, Rebbe, the Divrei Yecheska, has a different interpretation. He says, Why didn't he come immediately when we left Egypt? 
Why didn't Yisrael hear the news? Wow, there were 10 plagues. Wow, after 210 years of oppression and servitude, they were liberated from the bondage of Egypt. Wow, I got to find out more about this. Why didn't Yisrael come then? Or why didn't he come when he heard about the splitting of the sea? What was it about the battle with Amalek? Especially if you consider the fact that we didn't defeat Amalek as we asked. We simply battled with them. What's impressive about battling Amalek? And moreover, why did he have to come at all? Why couldn't he from his hometown, from Midian, from his church, or from wherever he had his prominent position, why couldn't he simply adopt the seven Noahide laws, or even convert to Judaism, but yet remain in Midian, expand the Jewish, the Jewish influence? Why did he have to stop and move and drop everything he had and join the Jewish people? Azai Frek the Divir Yecheskel, that's the question of the Divir Yecheskel. And he says the following To Liyisra Hayakasha, to Kriya Siamsuf of Mechemas Amalachi of Etarte de Sasre Ahadadi, where Yisra had to come and check out for himself, what he had to come and examine, what he couldn't make sense of. And listen carefully, because I never heard this before, this never occurred to me. What Yisra was bothered by and he had to come check out was, it was a stira mineyubay, it was a contradiction. I don't understand. On the one hand, this is a people for whom the sea split. This is a nation, the Jewish people, that God suspends the rules of nature, intervenes in this world, and splits a sea. And yet, an Amalek could wage a war against them? How is it possible? We say in Az Yashir that the whole world was rattled. The whole world was shaken. Pundits were all trying to examine and understand exactly what happened here. Who are these Jewish people? What happened to the rules of nature? What happened to the way we expect things? Everybody was moved. So this people for whom the rules of nature were suspended, how could Amalek take them on? How could Amalek come to fight them? These are people who their very definition, their very definition, who was it who said that in Israel, if you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe in nature, I just totally butchered that quote. I forgot the quote. But the Jewish people were characterized, were defined. Our entire history is replete with miracle after miracle after miracle. Our very existence is a testimony to the possibility of miracles. The modern state of Israel, is it not a series of miracle after miracle after miracle? Despite our best effort to undermine it, four elections in two years, despite the Jewish incorrigible people who are somehow responsible for it, nevertheless, God, the whole story of the modern state of Israel is miracle after miracle after miracle. And you could ask the same thing about Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran and the anti-Semites and the BDS movement and those who call for the destruction of Israel. You could ask and those who accuse us of having, having our, our uh, laser in, uh, in heaven. You could ask the same question. How could anyone study the modern state of Israel? How can anyone look at 67 and 73 and look at all the wars that no Scud missile landed and killed anybody? War after war after war and not say, you know what? I'm going to find another people to pick on. I'm going to find someone else in the playground to steal their lunch because this people, there's something special. There's something going on. They came back to this land, skeletons, Holocaust victims, and they merited miracle after miracle after miracle. Did you not see the film um, Steven Spielberg's sister did about the first Israel Air Force where the planes were made of spare car parts and the people who flew those planes? It's, just, it's a miracle. So if you're, if you're objectively looking at the story of the modern state of Israel, you say, you know what? I'm going to find someone else in the Middle East or somewhere else in the world. That's who I'm going to pick on. Because these people, there's something magical. There's something special. There's something miraculous going on. And yet, and yet against all odds and against all logic, there are enemies even today. 
absurd. And that's what is simply repeating history from earlier. So Yisrael looks and he says, one second, on the front page, on top of the fold, I'm reading about the story of a splitting of a sea. Inexplicable. A sea splits. It closes up on the enemy and drowns them. For the Jewish people, it's open and they're able to walk across. And then beneath the fold, I find that there's a nation that chose to attack that very people who just merited to experience that miracle. Doesn't make sense. I gotta check out who these people are. So says the Divri Yecheskel, you know why Yisrael dropped everything and came? He said, I got to check this out. Maybe the headlines were an exaggeration. Maybe it was an exaggeration. Splitting of a sea, impossible. It had to be an exaggeration. That's what Rashi was asking. Not it was, what did Yisrael hear? Yisrael heard what the entire world heard. That's what we say in Az Yashir. The whole world heard about the miracles. But Yisrael was bothered by something that most others didn't even notice, which was the contradiction. How could it be? That's what he came to see, says the Divrei Yecheskel. He wanted to see what's going on here. Was it, which one is an exaggeration? The fact that Amalek attacked or the fact that the sea split, that there were miracles? Something's being exaggerated here because the combination of the two is an absolute impossibility. And so he had to come and see for himself. And that was Rosh's question. I have a different suggestion. And my suggestion is that perhaps the reason that Yisra was so moved by the story of the attack of Amalek, even though we didn't defeat Amalek, all we did was survive the attack of Amalek. We walked away, but we didn't win. We didn't triumph. So what impressed him? And I think perhaps this Divri Yecheskel answers that question, even though he doesn't spell it out. Maybe what impresses Yisra is he says to himself, Amalek are the epitome of evil. Amalek are everything that's wrong. Amalek are cynical, skeptical, wicked, evil, nefarious. Amalek represent everything. They don't value life. They don't value certainly an afterlife. They don't value spirituality. Amalek are the epitome of evil, the paradigm of, e the paradigm of evil. And yet there's one nation they're obsessed with. There's one nation that evil can't leave alone, even though it makes no sense and it, even though it's self-destructive for them to go down that road. So I've got to go check out who that people are. It wasn't the fact that we defeated Amalek that impressed Yisrael because we didn't defeat them. Perhaps what impressed Yisrael was not that we defeated Amalek, but that Amalek chose to pick on us. And I would say that it's, in this way, a sort of, I don't know if it's comforting or a silver lining, because we'd rather they all leave us alone. But if the UN disproportionately condemns one nation, and the UN is a bastion of darkness and wickedness and evil, and they're obsessed with one people, there's something really good about that people. That people represent the threat of goodness and light and blessing. So sometimes when you can see evil, and then you could find who is evil targeting. Now you know what's good. Because if that's what evil feels so threatened by, if that's what evil is working so hard to eliminate, that must be the source of good in this world. And perhaps that's what impresses Yisra, and that's what makes him join. Oh, that's point number one. Point number two, I want to share with you insights from Rav Nevensal Shlita. Rav Nevensal, the great Talmud Chaver of Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach Zatzal. Rav Nevensal should live and be well, is the uh, Rav Harashi of the Iratika. He's the chief rabbi of the old city of Yerushalayim, a great tzaddik, a great Tamil chacham. He's got sichos, um, magnificent volumes on Chumash. And in the sichos, on our parsha, Rav Nevensal has a beautiful, beautiful insight in discussing Pasha's Yisro. This was written up very beautifully in an article called Derech Eretz Torah by Rav Benish Ginsburg of Michlala. Very grateful. He's taught many of my daughters, teaching my third daughter there this year. So uh, thank you for writing this up and for expanding upon it. But Rav Nevensal in the Sefer says, 
says the following. If, in fact, Yisrael comes after Matan Torah, why does he appear? Why is he presented before what we began with? If you believe the Torah generally follows chronology, but at times deviates from the chronology in order to communicate a theme, what is the theme that's being communicated here? What is the theme that's being communicated here? And from Nativ Aryeh, true? Rebbe and Nativ Aryeh, I apologize. So if Nevensal says the following, he suggests that um, what's being communicated is the juxtaposition of the placement of the arrival of Yisro after the war of Amalek and before the receiving of the Torah. And it's teaching us a lesson. Not the lessons that we just mentioned from the Divrei Yechezko, but teaching us a different lesson. And he says the following. The Torah is teaching us about Moshe Rabbeinu's midos, Moshe Rabbeinu's humility, Moshe Rabbeinu's modesty, that Moshe Rabbeinu did not let any of this go to his head. Moshe's prominence, Moshe's authority, Moshe's uniqueness in all of mankind could have easily put him in a position that he felt greater, superior, better than anybody else. But he never let it get to them to his head. And where do we see that? This is the Moshe Rabbeinu who's going to ascend Har Sinai, the only one uniquely. He's going to go on top of the mountain and speak directly to God. He's going to live without food and water because he's going to be angelic during that time. He's going to have this chus, the merit to bring down the Torah, and he's going to be the person closer to God than any human being in all of history. Moshe is the only person who one of the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam is to believe that Moshe is the Avanavim, the father of prophets, that Moshe is unique, categorically different than all others. Now you can imagine, if you have the pedigree that I just described, if that's what's on your resume, if one of the 13 principles of faith of what it means to be a believing Jew is to believe that you are better, superior, different than every other human being, you can imagine that that would go to your head. And yet, it doesn't. At the end of last week's parsha when Moshe turns to Yehoshua and he says, we need to recruit soldiers. We've got to fight Amalek. They're attacking us. We've got to take them on and defend our people. He says, Choose for us fighters. And the key word there is lanu. Choose for us. And Rashi quotes from the Medrash that Moshe, when he is conscripting people into the army, he doesn't say, choose for me. I'm the general. I'm the commander in chief. I'm the man. I'm God's assistant. Choose for me. He says, Bechar lanu anashim. Choose for us. What's the significance of lanu? He's showing honor to Yehoshua. He's showing honor to the people. He makes it not about I, but he makes it about we. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which is one of the famous, most famous speeches in all of history, I once read an article. The Gettysburg Address is famous. We, we think of the Gettysburg Address because everybody knows the name. We think it must be as long as a Shabbos Shuvah, Shabbos Agadah, Russia, right? It was a few minutes long. It was several hundred words. It was a very, very short address. There's a big lesson in that. I have yet to learn it, but there's a big lesson in that. But I think even more, I read an article that showed that what Lincoln did in that address, which was very different than many of his predecessors, and sadly has been different than many of his successors, is that in that address, Lincoln did not talk about I, 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 I. Me, 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 my, 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 I, I, I. He talked about we, and he talked about us, and he won over the American people. Because when he involved us, and included us, and with humility made it about the people and not him, the we instead of the I. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu here does. Even though Moshe, the commander-in-chief, Moshe, the categorically different, unique human being, had every right to say, I, 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 and choose for me, he doesn't. He says, Bechar Lanu. He speaks with humility to Yoshua, number one. Number two, Jewish people are fighting, and Moshe is davening, and they're holding up his hands, Aaron and Chur, and when he gets tired, he sits on a rock. Why does he sit on a rock? Have you ever seen a rebbish a chair? Have you ever been to a tish? A rebbish, a chair is thick padding, arms, ornate, ostentatious, beautiful. 
Why doesn't he sit in a nice chair? I've had the privilege, I'll give a little flex, I've had the privilege to be at several meetings in the Roosevelt Room of the West Wing of the White House. And it's fascinating, around the conference table of the Roosevelt Room of the West Wing of the White House, all the chairs are the same but one. The one chair that's different looks like the other chairs, but the back of that chair is taller than the other chairs. And I'll give you a hint, it ain't the vice president who sits there. The president has a chair which is a little bit taller than all the other chairs. I'm not criticizing that, it's the position of the president. You have to honor the position of the president, I got it. But Moshe Rabbeinu, He's the president, the prime minister, the commander-in-chief. And when he needs to rest in that war, he says, I'm going to sit in a rock. Because if my people are fighting and they're uncomfortable, then I'm going to be no sebo'olam chavero. I'm going to feel their pain. And I'm going to sit in a rock. I'm not going to sit in some high position. Next, we get to this week's parsha, says Rav Nevensal. Now, again, let's understand that chronologically, Yisrael arrives after the receiving of the Torah. So the Torah has been given. Moshe ascends the mountain, the one person. And he goes up and he speaks directly to God and he receives the luchos. And he is empowered and he is charged to come down and to be the ambassador, the transmitter of Torah to not only the Jewish people then, but in perpetuity and forever, he's Moshe Rabbeinu. He remains our teacher and for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and forever, Moshe is the teacher of the Jewish people. He comes down from that mountain. And then they say to him, Moshe is busy teaching. He's been named the Rosh Yeshiva of the largest Yeshiva, the only Yeshiva, the world Yeshiva, and he's giving shir, he's giving the shir klolis, the Rosh Yeshiva. And they say, Rosh Yeshiva, I know you're giving shir right now to like two million people, but your father-in-law is coming. And what does he do? Does he say, you know, give him a cold drink and a newspaper and tell him I'll be there in a few minutes when I'm done? Does he say, tell him to pull up a chair, take some pride in his aidam and his son-in-law, I'm giving Shir Klali, take a look. You know what Moshe Rabbeinu does? He gets up and he goes out to greet his father-in-law. And what happens after Moshe interrupts the Shir? What happens when Moshe gets up and goes to interrupt his father-in-law? Rashi tells us what happened. He interrupts and then everybody follows him. Everybody follows him. Aaron follows him. The Zikanim follow him. The whole people follow him. And whether it means literally they follow him, they accompany him physically to greet his father-in-law, or it means they follow him. They watch and they listen and they learn and they follow his way. The Derech Eretz, Kadmala Torah. That you know what? Receiving the Torah is important, but so is Derech Eretz. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was displaying. And that, says Rav Nevensal, is why it appears out of order. The lesson that we have, Derech Eretz, Kadmala Torah. Our rabbis tell us that Derech Eretz, interpersonal relationships, the way we treat one another, being a mensch, it precedes Torah. It is the prerequisite to living a life of Torah. If you have Torah, but you're not a mensch, then you're not really living authentic Torah. The prerequisite to Torah is to be a mensch. And where does it say it? How did they know that? Where did they see that? And the answer is from the fact that the arrival of Yisra was placed between the battle with Amalek and receiving the Torah is teaching us the lessons that Moshe Rabbeinu himself transmitted, not with his words, but with his modeling, with his actions. That what? anashim. He shows humility and he says to Yeshua, we instead of I. He sits on a rock instead of on a throne. He gets up and he interrupts the shear he's giving to millions of people in order to go out and to greet his father-in-law and everybody follows. Because why? And then Rav Nevensal quotes a fourth pshat in the name of his father. Rav Nevensal quotes the name of his own father. Yisro comes to Moshe and tells him he's making big mistakes in the judicial system. Now again, Yisro comes, I'm like a good father-in-law, and I can make this joke now because I'm a father-in-law twice over. Yisro comes, I'm in the club, and he gives unsolicited advice to his son-in-law Moshe. Now, I'm a son-in-law and a father-in-law. As a father-in-law, you don't understand why your advice is not warmly received. After all, you're so smart and you live life longer. But as a son-in-law, sometimes you wonder, why is he giving me advice? I didn't ask for it. I don't need it. Doesn't he know who I am? So what is Moshe Rabbeinu? Moshe Rabbeinu, again, 
the Avanavim, the greatest human being to ever live, the father of prophecy, the one who was on the mountain and spoke directly to God, Moshe, who was handpicked by God, and all of a sudden his father-in-law comes in the scene and he's not there for 20 minutes and he's already giving unsolicited advice. If I'm Moshe, I say, listen, listen, whatever he called him, Abba, Tati, father-in-law, Shver, I have no idea what he called him. But listen, and Yisro had seven names, so he might as well throw on a few more. Whatever he called them, I can understand Moshe saying to him, listen, I appreciate it. It's very thoughtful. You're a very accomplished man in Midian. But you know, I've got this relationship with God. God's mentoring me. And, and I think I'm good. I think I'm good. God didn't talk to me about setting up systems and courts and just, I think I'm good. If God had something to tell me, he would have told me. He didn't tell me. So I think I'm good. But Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't do that. In this fourth story, what does Moshe Rabbeinu do? He says to Yisro, that's fantastic advice. Thank you for sharing it. There's such wisdom. I'm going to accept that. I'm going to pursue that. Moshe displays that he's lomed mikol adam. That part of derech eretz Torah, part of the menshlechkai, part of what it means to be a good person is the willingness to learn from anyone and everyone. There's wisdom in everyone around us. Even our father-in-law. Again, I'm a father-in-law. Even a father-in-law. There's wisdom. So Moshe doesn't say, thanks but no thanks. I don't need you. I've got God as a mentor and a rebbe. He says, that's very good advice. That's brilliant. Absolutely, I'm going to do it. And so Rav Nevin shows that Derech Eretz Kodma Torah is in the Chumash itself. And maybe that's why it's out of order. You could read more in Rav Nevin wonderful Sefer Sichus on Sefer Shemos, where he describes it very, very beautifully. Rav Benish Ginsburg, when he quotes this in his shir, he related it to a great Talmud Chacham, Rav Yisrael Gustman Zatzal, who was a Godel in the previous generation, a member of the Beis of Vilna when he was only in his 20s. He uh, survived uh, the Holocaust, spent several years running from the Nazis, made his way to Eretz Yisrael, lived in Rechavia, and there are incredible stories of Rav Gustman. I wish if we had more time, I would share some of them with you. But one of them that's uh, relevant here is that Rav Gustman was once caught cleaning the floors of his yeshiva on Erev Shabbos. And people said, Rebbe, this is beneath your kavod. You're the Rosh Yeshiva. Like, you're a huge Tamachacham. What are you washing the floor for? So he said, let me tell you a story. I once arrived late to the Beisden in Vilna. When I walked in, Rav Chaim Ozer stood up for me. When the Chavetz Chaim was visiting, since Rav Chaim Ozer stood up, the Chavetz Chaim stood up. And once the Chavetz Chaim stood up, the rest of the Beisden stood up. And said Rav Gustman, that moment when I was so embarrassed, that was enough covered to last an entire lifetime. So it's perfectly okay for me to clean the floors or do anything. Because in that moment, I got more than enough covered for an entire lifetime. And Ginsburg says... That always reminds him of this story, that when Yisro arrives, Moshe goes out. Because Moshe goes out, Aaron goes out. Because Aaron goes out, the elders of the Zikanim go out. Because they go out, the rest of the Jewish people all go out as well. And that is, uh, and that is the story of Derech Eretz Torah, the Derech Eretz that's shown. He quotes here as well one, one of the story of Rav Gustman, that, you know, um, Rav Lichtenstein Zatzal, when he made Aliyah and he wanted to volunteer to fight in a war shortly after his arrival, the Yom Kippur War, but they didn't need him his age so there was a shortage of milkmen delivering milk, though. So the least he could do was be- deliver the milk to try to help out. So he was delivering the milk in Rechavia where he lived, and he delivered it to the home of Rav Gustman. And when he delivered the milk to Rav Gustman, Rav Gustman and he started to get in a conversation, and they ended up st- speaking for a long time. Uh, and they talked in learning. They talked sugis and shas. And when he left, Rav Gustman apparently commented to his wife, this is why we moved to Eretz Yisrael, because even the milkmen are enormous Talmidei Chachamim. It's a great story, both about Rav Gustman and about Rav Lichtenstein. So that is all Derech Eretz Torah, maybe why it is out of order. Perikid Ches, Pasuk Yud. Moving right along, Yisrael arrives, he's greeted warmly. Vayomer Yisrael. So 
What happens? Moshe tells them all about what had happened. Moshe, with excitement and with such joy, tells them all about the story, about everything that had happened. And Yisro, Vayichad Yisro, he got goosebumps, Rashi says. He was so excited. He was so moved. Moshe's enthusiasm was so contagious that after Vayisaper, the way that Moshe told him, Vayisaper Moshe Lechosno, because he told him with such excitement, it was contagious. In fact, that's what the Imrechaim writes. The Imrechaim, the Helig Vizhnitzer writes, Vayisaper Moshe Lechosno, Vayomar Yisro Baruch Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu Sipor Lo Sipor Yitzis Mitzrayim Behislavos Vizorus Kazu. Because of the enthusiasm with which Moshe told the story, Moshe said, you're not going to believe what happened. And God revealed his hand, and Hashem was amazing, and Hashem loves us. So what happened? Because Moshe told the story with enthusiasm, joy, and vigor, so therefore Yisro, it was contagious. Yisro also said, wow, that's amazing. What a story, you're right. Baruch Hashem. And in fact, we'll speak in a moment, he was the very first to say Baruch Hashem, to use the word Baruch in association with God. But what precipitated Yisro's reaction was Moshe's enthusiasm. And I think there's a very powerful lesson from this in Chaim. If we want our children to be on fire, we have to be on fire. If we want the people around us to be excited about the hand of Hashem in our lives, then we have to be excited about the hand of Hashem in our lives. Vayisaper, the degree and the way in which we tell that story, is the way in which the people around us will react. So Yisro reacts, Vayichad, he gets, in fact, he gets goosebumps. And how does he react? Pasuk Yodam on page 396. Wow, Baruch Hashem, God saved you from the hands of Egypt, the hands of Paro. He saved the nation from under the hands of the, of the Egyptians. This expression of Baruch Hashem, let's take a look at our first at our first Eshtamid, our first Rav Druk of the day. So first he quotes the Gemara in Sanhedrin. The Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us, Tanamishim Rav Papis, Gnayu Lemoshe Veshishim Ribo. Yisra's reaction was in fact an indictment both of Moshe and of the Jewish people. Shalom Amru Baruch Atsheba Yisra V'Amar Baruch Hashem. Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, they praised God, they thanked God, but they never said Baruch. And Kla Yisrael, the Jewish people, they saw God, they talked to God, they were grateful to God, but they never said Baruch. Who said Baruch? The very first to say Baruch, blessed, is Yisro. This non-Jew, this spectator, this observer to their history, he is the first one to say Baruch. Yisro is the one who introduces us to the word and the notion of Baruch. Moshe and 600,000 didn't say it until Yisro came. So why didn't they say it, wonders Rav Druk? It's a great question. Word Baruch is arguably the most common word in our liturgy. Think about our davening. Think about the blessings that we say. You have a cup of coffee, you have to say, Baruch Shakon You go to the bathroom after the cup of coffee, Baruch Asher Yatsar. You say 15 blessings, Birch We start the day by saying, God, I take nothing for granted. Wow, I can see and I can hear and I'm alive and I have a roof over my head. Baruch, 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 Baruch. So Baruch is such a part of our, why didn't they say Baruch? The indictment, the criticism, both of Moshe and the 600,000, why didn't they say Baruch? And what led Yisro to Taka say Baruch? Yisro comes after the splitting of the sea. Moshe and the Jewish people, they sang Shira. If they were so moved by the splitting of the sea in order to sing a song, and the song is incorporated into our davening, it's how powerful it is. If they were so moved to sing a song, why weren't they so moved to say Baruch? Blessed. Why didn't they use the word blessed is God? Blessed are you God. Blessed is God. So what's going on with this word Baruch? So first he quotes his father. Rav Druk quotes his father, the Drash Mordechai, Rav Mordechai Druk, and he says the following. 
Until now, the Jewish people were grateful. They were singing and they were praising God for the miracles they experienced. But whenever the Jewish people thanked God, you know what they thanked Him for? The things that they received. The benefits that they got directly. Their gratitude was limited to the things that they experienced. Yisro is the very first person who says, you know what? I want to see and express gratitude and acknowledge and recognize God, not for anything He did for me, but for something He did for another. To see God as a third party, as a spectator, He was the first to point a finger and say, Baruch Hashem, even though He wasn't the beneficiary, He was a spectator to those who were. Rashi He got goosebumps when he heard this story. Why did he get goosebumps? I understand if a miracle just happened to you, you had a near escape from a car accident, from Corona, you came back after being in a ventilator for a month, and you came back and you survived. Somebody's visiting our shul, who apparently was on the brink of death three times from Corona, and Baruch Hashem, thank God, they are better. So I understand that you recover from a terminal situation, and you say, Baruch Hashem, blessed are you God. I got it. But Yisro got goosebumps? And the answer is, that's the power of what Yisro saw and how he felt. So Yisro, what he introduced to the world is that Yisro is the very first as an outsider and as a spectator who's able to say, Baruch Hashem. That is the insight of the Drash Mordechai. To expand on it, the, the Grizz, Ravel Salavechik, whose last living son passed away, Rav David Salavechik, the world is still in mourning for him, Ravel the Brisker Rav, explains a law in Shulchan Aruch this way. In the Code of Jewish Law in Shulchan Aruch, it tells us that you're allowed to be Yotzei Bircha Sagoma Mechavero. If a person survives a life-threatening situation, which could mean an illness, but also could mean air travel or traveling across the ocean, you come back from a cruise or you land from an overseas flight, according to many, then you recite the bracha of Birch HaSagoma. God, thank you. My life was potentially threatened and I survived and I want to thank you. So the Shulchan Aruch says that one person can fulfill this bracha for another, can have them in mind. Sometimes you wish that people would observe this. You ever had a minion where a whole group of people just came back from Israel? One after another, after another, after another, they all think they have to bench Gomel. Let one person bench Gomel on behalf of everybody else. It's a Beferi Shulchan Aruch. And the Ramah writes there, The Ramah adds on an enormous Chiddush. The Ramah adds on an enormous novel idea. He says, do you know that a person can say the blessing and fulfill it for another, even if the person reciting the blessing themselves is not obligated? You didn't just cross a sea. You didn't just come through an ocean. You didn't just get out of jail. You didn't just recover from a terminal illness a life-threatening car accident, but you could still say the blessing for somebody else. How's that possible? So listen to what the Brisker Rav says. The Brisker Rav says, you know why that's possible? Because like Yisro. It depends. If you really don't care that the other person survived, you're not moved, you're not impressed, you're not inspired, you're not wowed, then you can't say the blessing and be mozi them. But if their survival, if their story and their experience gives you goosebumps, if you hear how they came back and you hear the miracle of their recovery, and you hear the miracle of their near escape, and you hear the miracle of their safety, and you are so moved, you have goosebumps, you can't help but say, Baruch Hashem, then the Taz qualifies this, Ramon says, then you're allowed to. The Taz says you have to have simcha. Only if you have simcha, if you have joy from the miracle of the other, can you say the Bircha Sagoma for them and be motzi them. And that says the Briskarov is, is exactly what's going on over here. That Yisro is the very first one to feel the Baruch Hashem. He's the first one to say Baruch because he's a third party, he's a spectator. He's not the beneficiary, he didn't directly benefit. And the Briskorov continues, that's why Vayichad Yisro, Vayichad Chadudin means goosebumps. 
Yisra had goosebumps. He had this incredible joy. But Vayichar also means Milashon Echad, unity, unified, connection. When you feel united, unified, connected to another, so much so that their experience inspires you, that you are able to connect with them. Vicariously, it's as if you survived, so much so that you're moved to bless God, then you're allowed to say the bracha. Even though you yourself are not obligated, you could say the blessing for them. What a beautiful insight about us as third party, as spectators, but seeing Hashem's hand in others. How often do you read a biography or you read stories of small miracles and you're just wow after wow after wow, what a story. And you're moved by it. You get goosebumps, you shed a tear, you, 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 you shiver. So you say, Baruch Hashem, Yisro, that was the Baruch that he introduced us to, that was the Baruch of the, of the Baruch Hashem. But Rav Druk offers a different explanation, not that of his father and not that of the Briskorov. He uh, asks some questions on his own father's interpretation, therefore he rejects it, but he offers another. And he says, How in the world can we bless God altogether? God is Melochal Arts Kavodo. God fills the whole world. God is the source of all blessing. What is the idea that one sees a miracle and points and says, Baruch Hashem, blessed are you, God. We are in a position to bless God. God's the one who gives the blessings, not us. So how could we possibly say Baruch Hashem? So the Nefesh Chaim says, Says the that God sometimes has storehouses of blessing that He wants to descend to this world, but He needs us to recognize. The key to opening the storehouse, the key to the flow of blessing, is for us to recognize it comes from Him. And that's when we point what we're saying is, God, You are the Makor HaBracha, You are the source it comes, it derives, it flows from you. The word bracha comes from the word brecha, which is a stream. Everything that flows, all the blessing that we value, it all flows and it all comes down from you. It's all coming from you. That's baruch atah, not blessed are you God that we're giving him the blessing, but baruch atah, you God are the source of all blessing. And that's how Yisra was reacting. Baruch Hashem. He wasn't giving God a blessing, but he was acknowledging, he was pointing, and he was recognizing that God is the source of all the blessing in the world. And Rav Juk continues, he says, we see this in our benching. In the paragraph, we say, Eat and be satisfied and bless God. What do you mean, eat and satisfied? It's based on a passage. Eat and be satisfied and bless God. How do you bless God? What it means is whatever you've just eaten, whatever you've just enjoyed, Whatever you've just had in your life, recognize, point, and say, He's the Makor Bracha. It all comes from God, is the source of it all. It is all from God. Perak Yudches Pasuk Yudbeis. Let's keep going. Torah continues, and it says that Yisro brought all kinds of sacrifices. Aaron and the elders all came to break bread with Moshe Shver. Chosein Moshe, he doesn't even have a name. He's called Moshe Shver. They came to break bread with Moshe's father-in-law, Lefneha Elokim, before God. So listen to Rav Meir of Apta. Rav Meir of Apta, not Rav Avni Yeshua of Apta, not the Apta Rav, but the great Tzaddik Rav Meir of Apta. He says, homiletically, he says, look at the Pasuk. Aaron and all the elders, they came to eat bread with Moshe's father-in-law, Lefneha Elokim. Do you know what you have to do before you can connect with God? He writes the following, We learn a very important principle. Before you can arrive at the high level of being before God, you need a parnasa. 
you need a parnasa. Derech Eretz is Kadma Torah. The other interpretation of Derech Eretz, not Rav Nevensal's, is Derech Eretz means a livelihood. You need a livelihood. You need to be involved in society and the world. You need to be working and productive. You need to earn a livelihood with pride. Earning a living is a mitzvah in the Torah. Work is not a concession. It's a value. God worked six days before he rested the seventh. We work before we rest. And so therefore, Rav Meir of Apta uh, says, that's the pshat. Aaron and the elders come to break bread before lefneha elokim. Before you can connect with God, you need a parnasa. Because, you know, if you're, if you're scrambling, if you're knocking on the doors, if you're collecting from others, if you can't make ends meet and you can't put food on your table, then how much are you going to learn? And how can you daven? And what good can your religious life be? So therefore, lecho lechem. First, you got to take care of your parnasa in kemach in Torah. First, you got to take care of your livelihood, your income. You got to make sure you're stable. And only then can you turn to, can you turn to a life of lufnei ha'elokim. Rebbe has a little bit of a different slant on this, as you might have guessed he would. Rebbe Salavechik in the Rav Chumash says the following. He says, Who was the host of that gathering? There's a great barbecue going on. Yisro offered zvachim, he offered sacrifices. And now Aaron and Zikne Yisrael all come to break bread. So who's the host of it? Is it Yisro? After all, he's the Bala Karban. He's the one who brought the sacrifice. Is it Aaron? He's the elder statesman. Zikne Yisrael? Who is it? So writes Rabbi Salavechik, Rashi comments that Moshe served everyone the food at this repast. Moshe was the one who served. One would have expected Yisro to be the one to serve the guests. It was he who offered the sacrifice. However, Yisro recognized that he was not in fact the true host. Since God owns everything... He, in reality, is the host. Moshe was therefore the most appropriate person to serve food since Moshe was God's plenipotentiary. Fancy word for saying he was Moshe's representative. In an analogous way, when Hashem visited Avram, Avram jumped up from his seat to receive the divine presence. Hashem, in effect, said, you're making a mistake, Avram. You consider yourself the host and I'm the guest. But the opposite's true. I'm the host and you're the guest. I'm receiving you not in your tent, but it's my tent. This is my tent because nothing on earth is truly yours. Everything is mine, so remain seated. And that says the Rav is what's going on in the words, Lifneha Elokim. Yes, they had a meal. And who was the host of the meal? Was it Yisra who brought the sacrifice? What is it Aaron who's the elder statesman? Is it Moshe? The answer is Lifneha Elokim. God is the host of every meal because this whole world and everything in it really belongs to God. But then Moshe, then the Rav continues and he says, Dining before God. Lecho Lechem Lifneha Elokim. How strange this phrase would have sounded to the Greeks of old. Thinking before or rather with God was a truism in late Greek philosophy, particularly among the Stoa, who considered the finite human intellect an infinitesimal component of the infinite divine logos, and who regarded thinking as a reflex of the divine noetic gesture. Whenever man engages in cognition, he submerges in God, because only through him is acquisition of knowledge possible. To come close to God or to unite with him through such an unrefined carnal activity as eating would simply evoke ridicule. So in the Greek way of thinking about God and religion, you would never talk about eating lefneha elokim. You'd never talk about eating being before God. What you do before God is think or philosophize. What you do before God is meditate or conceptualize. But the notion of a carnal act of eating, a mundane, material, base, physical act of eating, to describe that as being before God, how is that before God? Yet, says Rabbi Salavechik, our religious conscience felt differently. One eats with God in his presence. How? By sacrificial action which converts the food of man into the bread of God. Judaism developed a new institution, the Su'uda. It is neither an ordinary meal nor a feast. It is more than that. 
It is the crucible in which the bread of man is transposed into the bread of God, expressing the fellowship between God and man and participating of God in all human pursuits and activities. The realization of the idea of Seuda can occur only when man eats differently from the animal, when he displays uniqueness with regard to the physiological processes which are required to satisfy the demands of his body. From this pasuk, the Gemara derives the maxim that whoever enjoys a meal in which a scholar is involved, Sharoi, it is as if he enjoyed the radiance of the Shekhinah. Rashi quotes this. Rashi writes, um, on this if you eat a meal with righteous people it's as if you've enjoyed the radiance of the Shekhinah the word Shara is derived from a phrase that appears in regard to a Nazir who is prohibited from partaking in great products according to the Bamidbar he must also not partake of Mishras Anavim the Gemara says refers to bread soaked in wine just as bread absorbs wine the divine presence permeates the meal through the participation of the scholar. I love this insight of the Rav. In fact, it's the basis of a lot of Hasidus and Hasidic thinking, the idea of the Shirayim of the Rebbe, that when the Rebbe brings the right attitude to his eating, he transforms the food from a base animal act to an act of holiness and sanctity. And if you can imbibe part of his leftovers, then you are making contact with transformed food, which has become a vehicle and an instrument of holiness. So in other words, we don't bifurcate our lives. It's not that religious activity for us happens in the shul or in the study hall, and then when you eat, ooh, we stuff our face and we fress, we eat like animals, we eat like pigs. No, in the eating we reveal everything about who we are. We transform the act of eating to be lifnei elokim. Lecho lechem lifnei elokim. Think about this verse. Lecho lechem, we're eating bread, but lifneha elokim. So the way we eat and the quantity we eat and the style we eat and what we eat and with whom we eat and, and what we talk about while we eat, all of it is able to transform something which is a carnal, base, physical act of eating to transform it to become lifneha elokim, something that in fact is happening in front of and before God. Vayimi machras. Torah now tells us, Pasukid gimel, vayimi machras, vayishid moshlish bodis ha'am. So much more I want to cover and so much time we're running out of. It was the next day and Moshe came to judge the people. And as we said, Moshe comes and he offers this unsolicited advice. What precipitated it? Because he sees, he sees these crazy lines. And there was no fast pass. Actually, Rashi says there was a fast pass. People had a hierarchy in the order, in the lines. We gave a series of shiurim earlier in the year about um, protectia, rules of lines, the halachic rules of lines. But anyway, so there's an enormous line, and Yisro says, uh, it's not right, you need to delegate because there's no way you could be a good listener. Um, the question is, when did this all take place? So Rashi tells us, the word vayihi macharas. when did it take place? It took place the day after. Whenever you see the words mimacharas, the day after, it's a reference. Says Rashi, the day after what? Mimacharas yom hakipurim. It's the day after Yom Kippur. The day after Yom Kippur. So the Mepharshim asks, the following, this is in a sefer called Tapuche Chaim. This was pointed out to me by my friend uh, Avi Tashman. Tapuche Chaim, my old roommate from Smicha. And he says the following, the Tapuche Chaim, written by Reb Chaim Alter of uh, Carlsberg. And he says the following, Picture the scene for a moment. Moshe Rabbeinu has a line out his tent through the whole camp. Thousands of people are waiting to speak to him. What do they want to speak to him about? They're not asking about a milchik fork in the fleshy dishwasher. What are they asking him about? What they're asking him about is, what they're asking him about is um, to adjudicate fights. There are conflicts. 
there are disputes taking place between people, and they come to Moshe in order to resolve them. So the Mepharshim, these commentators wonder, one second, there are thousands of people waiting in line for Moshe to resolve disputes and conflicts they're having, and when was this? The morning after Yom Kippur? Like, Yom Kippur wasn't enough to make everyone let everything go? Yom Kippur didn't reprioritize everybody? Why are there all these disputes and conflicts to have to resolve? Mimacharas, the day after Yom Kippur, the day after getting the tablets. So you're talking about, this is after Har Sinai, the greatest moment of divine revelation, the ultimate ni'ila kumzitz to be moved. You're talking about the day after Yom Kippur, and there's still so many conflicts that need to be resolved? So the Sefer Tabuch Chaim answer is based on an insight of the Kotzker Rebbe, a famous insight of the Kotzker. The Kotzker says in, in, uh, in our Pasha, Yisra tells Moshe, you need to delegate. And in order to delegate, you need to choose qualified judges. What is the definition, what are the criteria of a qualified judge? What are the criteria of a qualified judge? So Yisro gives him a list of criteria. He's got to be wealthy so that he can't be swayed or bought up by money. He's got to be... Yisro gives him a list of criteria. One of them is not Anshe Shalom, people of peace. And the Kotzka was bothered. Why wasn't Anshe Shalom included in the list that Yisro is about to give him? Yisro tells him that the people have to be God-fearing. They have to despise money. They have to have their own money so that they can't be bought off. Why didn't he tell them they also have to be Anshe Shalom? They have to be people of peace. That was the question that bothered the Kotzker. So the Kotzker says, why? Because once we already said that they have to be Yirei Hashem and Anshe Emes, so then we know they're going to be Anshe Shalom. Lo Amar Yisro Livcho Anshe Shalom, Ki Kasherim Yirei Hashem Anshe Emes, Ein Machlokas V'chiluke Deos, V'ashalom Ba If you're people of truth and you're God-fearing, then you're not going to have conflict. Conflict arrives because of ego. So if you've subjugated and sublimated your ego, if you're God-fearing, if you have awe of God and you're people of truth, then you're not going to have the conflict. You know, through lies and false flattery, through manipulation, you could live peacefully with anybody. But that's not a real peace. A real peace. So when Moshe was resolving the conflicts between people, it wasn't financial disputes, and it wasn't personal ego-driven conflict. It was that people said, I want to know the right hashkafa. We're having a debate right now. Should rabbis endorse candidates? Should we give land for peace? Should we... There's two legitimate points of view. And they came to Moshe to try to resolve it. Because that's the real shalom. A real shalom is when you're um, trying to resolve the truth, not when you have a shalom, a peace, that's based on, on false flattery and lies. They couldn't come to that real unity. You know, we have, um, we have a federation that magnificently convenes all the rabbis several times a year, Reform, conservative, orthodox, Chabad, they categorize Chabad in its own category, not me. And we get together, and we have an amazing unity. In fact, our community won the unity prize in Yerushalayim. Representatives of our community flew to the president's home, Rivlin's home, President Rivlin's home, and received the unity prize for the unity that we have. But unity is easy when you do a joint Purim carnival. Unity is easy when you have a joint rally to stand up for Israel or against anti-Semitism. Can you have unity where you're debating, where you're debating very significant and real things. That's the real question of unity. So a unity that's based on, on 
either superficial connection or a unity that's based on manipulation and false flatteries and easily unity. But a unity, says the Kotzka, that's based on the ability to have legitimate, real disagreements, the ability to um, connect to people, even though you disagree vociferously and vehemently, that's a real unity. And that could only happen the day after Yom Kippur. That could only happen after receiving the Luchos. That is his, his suggestion. Okay, they stand underneath the mountain. They stand underneath the mountain. It's time for Kabbalah Satora. And we know three days they prepare. So much to say in this parsha. Three days they prepare, and then Hashem holds a mountain over their head, and He threatens them that if you receive it good, if not Shantek Vuraschem, then you're going to be buried there. Kafalem Harkegigis, God held the mountain over our, over our head. First of all, I want to tell you an amazing chida. Rav Chaim Yosef David Azulai, an amazing comment of the chida. Gershon is Gair Kakotan Says the chida, you know, that we have a, we have a expression. A convert who converts is as if they're born again, they're born anew. And the truth is, this has a major halachic implication. The convert, after the conversion, is no longer halachically related even to their immediate biological relatives. They're no, technically, they can marry their own sister because they're not related to her. Why? Because Gershon is Gaya, Kekot and the convert who converted is as if they're born again, born anew, can have a 90-year-old convert, and they are exactly one day old on the day of their conversion. So listen to this chida. And for my holy convert friends out there, I have the privilege of being the Menahel of a Beisden for conversion here in South Florida. We did three conversions a couple weeks ago. We meet regularly, and we have the privilege of welcoming new Jews into the tribe, all qualified, worthy, all that we would be proud and are proud to have as, as members who work hard and who earn their, their place. So listen to this chida. This is dedicated to them. He says, he says, Gershon Esgayer Kamshon Lodami, B'chon Lashon Azav Sha'amru Gershon Esgayer V'lo Amru Goyishon Esgayer. Why doesn't it say Goyishon Esgayer? It really, the expression should be a non-Jew who converted. What do you mean a convert who converted? Did it ever bother you? It has struck me before that it's a very clumsy expression. It should be Goyishon Esgayer, a non-Jew, a Gentile who converted. Why do we say a convert who converted? Listen to what he says, the Chida. Lahoros, Kizos lefnim mimaymed harsina shekibalnu atora sham nimtza nefesh hager hazeh haba achar zman rav maod lehizgayer because maybe they just converted when they emerged from the mikvah today but do you know their soul has been Jewish since harsinai they were at harsinai we have a tradition we have a, a medrash that tells us that every convert who ultimately converted their soul was present at harsinai as well I saw a comment from Rabbi Kiva Eger Rabbi Kiva Eger had a tradition. He says that when God went nation to nation and offered the Torah and the other nations rejected, it means that the wholesale nation rejected. But there were individuals among those nations who said, I would accept it. I'd love this. I embrace it. I want to be part of it. But they were afraid to speak up for fear of the leaders of their nation who were rejecting it. Those individuals, they are the future converts who join our people. And so because at that time already, they were ready, their souls were ready to, to accept it, it means the soul of every uh, ultimate convert was really present in Harsinai, and that's why we have this expression. Not Goishin is Gayer, not a non Jew who converted, but a Gershin is Gayer, the convert who converted because they've been a convert not only once they emerged from the mikvah, they were a convert since Harsinai. Their soul was always destined to convert. They've been a member of our people since we became a people. It was just a technicality that they had to undergo this process, but their soul actually has been part of our people 
since we became a people, since we stood side by side with them at Har Sinai, an amazing, amazing chida. Rav Druk has a beautiful comment on this notion that we stood under the mountain and kafa alayim har kegigis. We don't have time for me to tell you because we're running out of time. So I'm going to save that one for next year. It's an amazing kafalim hagigis. He explains a, a, a line in Dayenu, in the Haggadah. God, if you only brought us before Harsinai. And everybody knows the question. What do you mean? What would be the point of being brought before Harsinai if we never got the Torah? So the usual answer everyone gives is because we had achtas, we had this tremendous unity. So if we experienced unity and community, even if we didn't get the Torah, Dayenu, that would have been enough. That's the classic answer everybody says at the Seder. But Rav Juk has a different answer. He says, note it says, Ilo Kervanu Lehar Sinai. It doesn't say Lehar Sinai, it says Lefnei Har Sinai. It doesn't say, if you only joined us to get the Torah, it says, if you only brought us to the point that, that happened before the giving of the Torah. What happened before the giving of the Torah? God held the mountain over our head and threatened us. And that is what the Haggadah is referring to. There was something special about that moment. The experience of His holding the mountain over our head was impactful, was transformational. There was something so significant about it that we say, Dayenu, that and enough would be enough for us to be grateful for, even if we didn't afterwards get the Torah. What is it that was so special about that moment? That, you'll have to tune into Parshas Yisro next year, because we're running out of time for this year, in order to be able to say it, you'll have to come back to next year. So let me just end with another message, another insight of the great Rabbeinu Bachya, Rabbeinu Bachaya, at towards the end of our Parsha. Towards the end of our parsha, I there was so much more to talk about. It breaks my heart. If you would stay here, I'd speak for two hours, or three hours, because each parsha, it's just it's a disservice to the parsha. Anyway, towards the very end of the parsha, now that we've received the Torah, we start to examine its laws. Page four twelve in the article Stone Chumash. Moshe, speak to the Jewish people and tell them you saw that I God spoke to you directly in unprecedented revelation. I spoke to you. Elohei kesav, Elohei zahav, lo sasun lachem. God says, you saw me, you experienced me, you've tasted the real deal, the genuine thing, so therefore, do not make an image of what is me, gods of silver and gods of gold, do not make for yourselves. God says, now that you can touch the real thing, now that you experience the real thing, don't make images of gold, don't make images of silver. Rabbeinu Bachaya, Rabbeinu Bachya, However you pronounce his name, has an amazing comment. It's Perkhof Pasachov. And he says the following. Yesh lafarish lo sasun iti, don't do to me. Kisha'atem omdim betfila iti, lo tachshavu bekesav ezav asher imachem. Shem ta'asukein, ma'la ani alechem, kilo asisim elohe chesav elohe zahav. Says Rabbeinu Bachaya. Here's how he interprets the Pasach. Lo sasun iti, when you're supposed to be with me, when is it we're with God? Of course, it's every moment of every day. But when are we with God? When we're davening. So when you're supposed to be with me, don't think about gold and silver. When you're supposed to be with me, don't be obsessed with money and your portfolio and the stock market. Don't think about what kind of car you drove to shul that day or the house that you want to buy. Lo sasun iti. When you're with me, don't be thinking about material, physical things because if you do, then you've made Elohei chesed, Elohei zav. You've turned the gold and silver into gods. There was a Rav who once went to a wealthy individual to solicit a donation to support his communal efforts, but the wealthy person refused to give. And rather than react with disappointment, the rabbi simply led the wealthy person to the window and asked him to describe what he saw. So the man said, I see people walking in the street, and I see children playing in a playground. So the rabbi led the man in the home to a mirror, 
And he said, okay, tell me now, what do you see? So the man said, now I see myself. So the rabbi said the following. He said, the window and the mirror, they're both made of glass. When you look through the clear window, you saw other people. But when you look through the glass that was coated with silver, all you could see was yourself. That's the difference between the window and the mirror. So there's amazing Rabbeinu Bechaya. Rabbeinu Bechaya says, Lo sasuni ti, when you're supposed to be with me, don't be obsessed and consumed with physical material things because then you've turned those physical material things into a God and you have abandoned me. Thank you again to our sponsors. If you'd like to sponsor a future edition, again, Lee, L-E-E, at brsonline.org. Next week, we're running a big campaign, BRS Plus, BRS Global. If you're listening and you're not a member of BRS, but you want to be part of the BRS Global community, then watch and listen for that opportunity. We thank you in advance for your participation. Looking forward to continuing to learn tomorrow morning, 10 minutes of meaning, 8.15, living with the moon at 8.45. Tomorrow night, we go behind the bima with Congressman Ted Deutsch and his wife, Jill. That's at 9 p.m. tomorrow night. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.